So if you've got a Bible, grab it. We're going into our time of teaching. We'll be in the book of Isaiah, which is in the Old Testament. So it's going to be in the first half of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the ends of the rows. We, pre- we preach from the Bible. That's what we do here at Sedera. So we're going to be in, in Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, so you can thumb there. And as you're thumbing there, I, I just want to tell you, uh, today we're talking, it's Advent, second week of Advent, and we're going to be speaking on the topic of peace. And in my life right now, it doesn't always seem like I have a lot of peace. So I've got a three-and-a-half-year-old named Grayson, and I've got a one-month-old named Owen. And it turns out when you have a second child, the first child gets a little jealous and gets even louder than they were before they had a sibling. And so Grayson's been particularly loud. He loves to sing songs, but his songs, I can't understand them. It's like he's in a screamo band. He just screams at the top of his lungs as loud as he can, and he thinks it's good, gets his talent from his father, but it's, it's quite distracting. It's, there's something of a cacophony, and you don't even realize it until he goes to bed, and then you're like, peace. <laughs> you're like, wow. The decibel level in this house has been incredible. But I think when we talk about peace, the reality is that many of us, and most people in our city, do not experience the kind of peace that we're going to talk about today. And the reason that I know this is not because I've gone around and I've asked people, please, on a scale of 1 to 10, tell me how much peace you're experiencing, because they wouldn't actually know They wouldn't even know how to answer that question because they don't even know the peace of God that's available to them. And so the way you figure out if people have peace is you try to look at how hard they work to distract and divert their energy. Do you know why you do that? Because you can't stand the silence of your life. You can't actually handle the silence And so you distract yourselves. Or as 16th century philosopher and scientist Blaise Pascal says so brilliantly in so many ways, he talks about it as diversion. We divert our attention. And he was speaking and writing primarily to the royal class, the courtly class of France, who themselves had people to do all their work and had so much leisure time, yet they found every way under the sun to engage in diversion. And so he'd write about that. And he says it actually reveals our heart that we can't even stand the silence in our lives. So here's a quote from Blaise Pascal. He says this, I have often said that the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. The silence terrifies you. My guess is that it does. There's nothing new under the sun. This was a problem back in the 1600s, and it is a problem today. But now we have more distraction, more diversions than ever before. Peter Kreft, who is a Christian philosopher, he wrote this related to Blaise Pascal's discussion of diversion. Kreft said this, If you are typically modern, your life is like a mansion with a terrifying hole right in the middle of the living room. So you paper over the hole with a very busy wallpaper pattern to distract yourself. You find a rhinoceros in the middle of your house. The rhinoceros is wretchedness and death. How in the world can you hide a rhinoceros? Easy. Cover it with a million mice. 
multiple diversions. We live in a time and an era in which the technologies of our world provide to us a million mice to take our attention so that we might not even realize the lack of peace that we feel. And so this time of year, this time of year known as Advent, Advent is another Latin word that just means the coming, where we anticipate the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ through the celebration of the first coming of Christ. At this time of year of Advent, we talk about peace a lot. And the reality is, so few of us actually experience that peace. So today, I want to parse a phrase, and we've been titling this little Advent series, Longing In. So last week, Ryan talked about longing in hope, and this week, we'll talk about longing in peace. So I want to parse that sentence for us, and one of the things that we'll say is that longing is the most common of human experiences. It's like breathing, But for Christians, longing has a different quality about it, a different depth about it that's unique to the world. There's three aspects of this longing that we enter into during this time of Advent, three aspects to understanding what longing really is. Longing begins with lament, lament. We see the world, we see our lives, we understand what we're experiencing, and we say something is not right Every part, every aspect of this life, of our society, of humanity is touched by sin and it is not as it should be. And when we realize that, we lament. Lament is not despair, but it is a profound sadness of the heart that realizes that things are not as God intends. Secondly, we anticipate. Longing is anticipation. Meaning that we realize that it does not have to remain as it is. It does not have to remain broken. That redemption and restoration is possible. So we anticipate that. And then thirdly, we work. Longing works. Longing is active. It requires our participation. Not just emotionally, but physically and mentally. We press into that lament to enact where we can transformation. But longing never goes away. If you want to read about longing and truly understand it, look to C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis has so many great quotes about longing and joy and how they're related. And one of the ways to understand how Lewis thinks about longing is that it's like forward-looking nostalgia. You know what nostalgia is? You think about the past and you say, man, those were the days. Well, longing is nostalgia, but some, in weird, some weird, mysterious way, it's, long, it's, it's nostalgia for the future. And we can't even understand why we long for a future that we've never experienced. But yet, we know that it's there. The Bible would tell us it's because it's been written on our hearts. And so though we've never experienced it in this life, we have nostalgia for it because it's what we were meant for. It's how God designed us to be. And so we long for it. So that's longing. So longing in, longing in peace. So in. Now, now part of the unique thing here is, of course, at this time of year, we long for peace. Of course we do. Of course we do. We long for 
peace. But everybody longs for peace. And so we've said in this little Advent series this year, we'll talk about longing in peace. As Christians, we have this preposition available to us that we don't just have to long for and hope for it in the future, but we can actually experience it now in our longing because we have things now available to us in Christ which transform the quality of this life and even the quality of our longing. So as we'll see, we long not just for peace, but we long in peace. Whereas the rest of the world would long for peace, but usually in anxiety. The third part of this little phrase is peace. Longing in peace. So what is peace? Because we throw that word around What does it actually mean? Well, if you look at the dictionary, peace means this. Harmony, accord, friendship, truce, love, reconciliation, unity, concord, union, order. Versus non-peace, which the dictionary defines as hate, disharmony, agitation, disagreement, frustration, Distress, worry, discord, war. Which of those defines our world? And do you see how deep these things are? I'm not sure what came to your mind when I said peace or what comes to your mind when you sing of peace this time of year. You see peace on a billboard or in a store. But I think in our times and at this time of year, We often reduce or dilute peace to a physiological sensation. You know what I'm saying here? Like we say, peace is this feeling that I have. Well, that's not true peace. That is not the kind of peace that we're talking about when we say longing in peace or the peace of God. Peace is not primarily, though it can be associated with and often results in, but it's not primarily physiological phenomenon. This is so important to grasp before we get into the rest of this because as nice and as beneficial and as helpful as the peace that comes from, say, vacation or eating well or exercise or marijuana or breathing techniques might be, we must not diminish the biblical notion of peace and reduce it to the good vibrations associated with the activities of this world. Because, not that there's anything, well, we can talk about marijuana another time, but not that there's anything necessarily wrong with the physiological phenomenon of peace, but biblical peace is so much deeper That if we mistake it or equate it with these things to the watching world, you know what they'll say? Well, you've got your peace from going to church. I get my peace from going here or doing this. Do you not think that's what people do? I'm so glad that works for you. This is what works for me. And at a very foundational level, they have no idea the peace that you speak of. Maybe you don't know it yourself. That's the danger. That's why I'm harking on this, because it's so important. This peace that we speak of is subterranean. 
It's in your bones, not just your nerves. It's rooted in this Hebrew concept of shalom. And shalom means completeness. So when the Old Testament speaks of the peace of God, it talks about God putting everything back together, that every part of life that was affected by sin, every part that is broken and not as it should be, is put back together. That's peace. That's shalom. And it's so much deeper than how we often speak of the physiological phenomenon of peace. We must redefine our witness to the world when we say we have the peace of God. Otherwise, they'll never turn and look for him because they'll think they found it in something else. More on that to come. More on how that works in just a bit. So, are you there with me? Are you there with me in Isaiah chapter 2? What we're going to do is look here at, even though, even though the sermon is, is about longing in peace, we have to look at why we can long for peace, okay? That, that's a great starting place. So I just, I just want to show you this uh, from the text. We've been in Isaiah. We'll be in Isaiah throughout Advent this year. Because we do this too. We long for peace that we do not yet have, and I'll show you how that connects to peace that we can have now, Okay? So look at Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. This is where we need to start. Isaiah for us, in chapter 1, has just pointed out the brokenness, the incompleteness of the people of God in Israel, the ways that they have turned from the one true God to serve themselves or other nations or other gods. And then in verse 2, he paints a picture, a future picture of what will happen when people come back to God. So here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That's the southern kingdom, as Ryan talked about last week, of Israel. Jerusalem is the capital city. He saw this. And saw this means the Lord revealed this to him. It shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Love that line. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Do you see that? Verse 4. They shall beat... Their swords into plowshares. Plowshares are just farming tools. They shall learn war no more. See, that's a picture of the future peace that's coming to God's good creation. And it will come when the mountain of the house of God, verse 1, is lifted up above all other mountains. Now, this mountain... Um, is a euphemism for Jerusalem because it was on a hill. 
the city of Jerusalem was on a hill, and then the temple mount was even on another little hill within the city of Jerusalem, the mountain of God. Basically, the throne of God lifted up above all other mountains, all other thrones, and the house of God reigns and rules. And house here means so much more than just a dwelling place. It means a complete system of justice. That's the picture we have. When God's house rules and reigns and judges between people, when his system of justice is the system of justice for all, we will have peace and we will not even learn of war. It will be a thing of the past. Peace will rule the day. Peace for all who long after the heart of God. Every tongue, tribe, nation who bows their knee underneath the rule and reign of God's system of justice, the one true God, the one good King, when that day comes, all will experience an everlasting peace. (laughs) Isn't this beautiful? This is what we long for. This is the promise of God that this will happen. But you know how this can't happen? As long as there's tribalism, as long as there is nationalism, as long as there's relativism, there can be no true, lasting peace. Do you know what the myth of relativism is? This is sort of the leading philosophy of the day in America. Though we have tribalism and we have nationalism, of course, of course. But relativism, or you can even call it secularism, rules the roost. It says this, if we simply make the hills, the mountains that this passage speaks of, small enough by giving each and every individual their own little hill to rule over and reign, their own tiny little mountain, it'll make everything so small. And if we get rid of all the big mountains that exist, think religion, systems of philosophy other than secularism, then we will have peace through tolerance. That's the myth. Here's why it's a myth. All we are doing is diversifying our lack of peace. So yes, it's true that the wars will be smaller, but now the wars aren't between nations or tribes or religions, they're with one another. And now we've got a billion little wars instead of a few big world wars. But you see, you see how tantalizing that idea is? Just give everyone their own little rule and reign with their own little mountain. They can be their own little kings and queens. And then we'll have the resemblance of peace. But that's not shalom. That's not shalom. That's a billion little mice covering up a rhinoceros. And a billion little mice can do a lot of damage. Eventually we'll figure this out. Eventually we'll see that a tiny little hill against a tiny little hill against a tiny little hill is not... God's peace. And this picture that we have here 
is of one true mountain coming up out of the ashes and providing to us everything that we've longed for, whether you're a Christian or not yet a Christian, that the system of justice that Jesus Christ will rule with is so much sweeter, so much truer than anything that we could dream up on our own. That's what we long for. That's Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. The, pu- the future shalom that God has promised he will bring by putting Jesus Christ at the center of everything to rule justly. Okay? So that's the peace we long for. Now let me show you how the longing for that peace turns into longing in peace. There's two sides to the coin for the peace that we can experience right now brought to us by Christ. In fact, let me, let me just tell you, we have this peace. Look at what Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, 27. John 14, 27. Do we have that, Kurt? Here it is. Jesus said this to his disciples. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let, your hearts, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So there's a peace that we've already been given by Jesus It comes to us through the help of the Holy Spirit. And there's two parts of it. The first part goes like this. We have peace now based on future certainty of peace. That's why I wanted to explain to you the peace we long for. But but as Ryan talked about last week, the hope that we have as well is a hope that equals certainty in that future peace. Okay? So Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, will happen. And when we, by faith, apprehend that and our hope is real and our certainty is real, it translates into a peace that you have currently. That's why Jesus said, the peace you have. Jesus also said this, there will be, in this life, in this world, tribulation. Do we have that verse up here, Kurt? Did I put that verse in? John 16? I don't think I put that one in. Oh, I did. Jesus said to his disciples. Magic. Okay, Jesus said to his disciples, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. And then he says this, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now what's going on here? You will have peace, and in this world you will have tribulation. So what I'm saying to you here, and this is so important, this is where the peace of God transcends how we like to talk about peace generally, is that in the midst of your tribulation, in your real tribulation, in your real pain, in your real confusion, in your real distress, you can have peace as well. And that peace is based upon the future certainty of God. The certainty of Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. So here's how it works in reality. I'm going to give you an illustration. I, some of the most anxious and 
well, anxious, I was going to say depressing times of my life, and you're going to laugh when I tell you what it is, but depressing is not the right word. Uh, just long, long times that I've had was as a, as a, as a young boy uh, sitting, like I was in middle school, sitting at my younger sister's gymnastics tournaments. Man, <laughs> okay? Just picture a 12-year-old boy sitting there watching these young gymnasts, <laughs> not quite Olympic level here, perform for hours on end. But yet every time my sister got up, it was thrilling. Like I loved it. But you know what? It was, I, have you ever, you know when you watch gymnastics? There's so much anxiety. I mean, gymnastics is the most anxiety provoking of all sports. And I remember that. Sitting there, just worried for my sister, just feeling all this angst. Now, could you imagine how different that experience would be if I already knew her scores before she performed? You see how it changes? Now, I think I would still feel anxiety because I wasn't sure exactly how it was going to play out, but I knew that she got a good score, and I would enjoy it so much more. Not that I, I would still kind of be on the edge of my seat, but I could enjoy because the knowledge of the future changes my present reality. It's beautiful. I mean, that's what's going on. This is the, the, the peace that we experience because we know, Isaiah, we don't know what will happen. We don't know how bad the tribulation will get. We don't know what we will experience, but we know the final score. This has happened to me in other ways, too. I'll just tell you, I have a history of kidney stones. Any doctors in the house? I have heard it said by many a doctor that kidney stones are as painful, if not more painful, than labor. Just saying. Yeah, I'm going to get beat up for that one. Okay. <laughs> Not your labor, Allie. Not yours. That's my wife. She just went through this. But, I mean, I've had a, around 10 kidney stones. And sometimes they get so bad, I don't pass them on my own, that I have to go to the emergency room. Now, let me tell you something. There is a profound difference between the time that I am laying in pain, especially in my first kidney stones when I didn't know what was going on, and I thought I was literally dying, And my father rushed me to the emergency room. I'm laying on the back seat of the car, literally thinking in my head, the pain could stop if I just opened the door and rolled out onto the freeway. Literally having that, that's how bad the pain was. But that experience of that tribulation changed the moment I walked into the hospital. And what changed? The pain was exactly the same. But now I had a certainty that there was an end to the pain. Because that pain med was coming. I didn't know how long I had to wait. I didn't know how bad the pain would get. I didn't know how many times I would throw up. But I knew there was an end. Before that, I didn't know. But once it was diagnosed and I knew that a bit of pain medication would relax my body. You see that? Knowledge of an end to pain, an end to the lack of peace, can result in a deep peace now. Doesn't mean the tribulation goes away or the pain goes away, but it changes the pain. So that's the first. So that's a peace based on future certainty of peace. Now we also have peace offered to us by Christ that is based on a present reality of peace. Okay? So one's a future reality and one's a present reality. Two sides of the same coin. 
And the peace, the reality of peace that we have now can be summed up when we look at Colossians 1, 19 through 20. There's many verses like this. It says this, For in him, that's Christ Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, think shalom, by the blood of the cross. So do you know that when you come underneath the blood of Christ, that you receive his sacrifice for you on Calvary, and that you are united to him through his resurrection, that you right now have peace with God, that you have shalom with your creator, that you are made new and complete in every sense of the word. Look at Isaiah 26, 1 through 4. It says this, In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah, and that day that he's speaking of is the day when Christ comes, when the Messiah comes and saves his people. We have a strong city, the song will go. He, that's God, sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. If you're a student of the Bible, what you realize is after God had created and he had perfect shalom with humanity living in the garden, humanity chose to go their own way and be their own gods and rule on their own hill, and they rebelled against God. And the consequence of that sin was separation from God. And it says that God had to steward them out of the garden and shut the gates. And he said two angelic beings that protected the holy presence and perfect presence of God from humanity. And right here in Isaiah 26, it pictures, it prophetically envisions a time that is coming when those gates will be opened again. And anyone who is trusting in God may enter in to the presence of God. On the cross and by the resurrection, those gates swung wide open. And anyone who says yes to Jesus Christ can now and forever have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ, God the Son, who is our perfect mediator. That's the picture. Are you picturing that? The gates have been closed, and in Christ, they are now open. Now, of course, not everybody walks through those gates. I thought of the Berlin Wall. And when it was torn down, peace between East and West Germany was renewed. But yet it took years and decades, and there's still parts of that peace that have not been fully realized. Of course, that's what's going on here as well. But for those of us who are trusting in God, who come underneath his good kingship, we now 
stand in the presence of God through Christ Jesus. When we pray, he hears our prayers. We know God because of Christ. That's a peace that we have right now in this moment. And so we can long in peace because that peace has been bought for us by the blood of Christ. Now my guess is that many of us in the room today are not experiencing the deep subterranean peace that I'm speaking of, that Christ has given to us. We do not feel shalom. We do not feel completeness. We feel as though our lives are fractured. So how can I begin to access this peace in full? How can I access this peace that I've heard about or I once had and lost? How do I regain access to it? The answer is this. Peace always and only comes through surrender. Peace always and only comes through surrender. You say, Dave, that's not the American way. In the words of the prophet Dwight Schrute, we must never acquiesce. I live by those, that motto. But peace only comes through surrender. Jesus modeled this for us. Think, think of this. Think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before he was crucified. What does he say? God, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. Surrender. Jesus Christ modeled for us surrendering to God's will in his life. And then guess what he does? The Roman guards come into the city and Peter pulls out his sword and he tries to protect Jesus. He says, they'll never take you. And what does Jesus do? I surrender. And through the surrender of Christ, all the way to the point of death on a cross, he models that peace only comes through surrender. Without surrender, there can only be struggle. But wait, wait, wait. Dave, wait. To surrender is to be owned and to lose control. And there's a lot of people and a lot of systems of justice and a lot of things in our world that if I give them control, they will abuse it. Well, absolutely. That's you longing for a better authority, for a better system of justice, for a better king, which is exactly who Jesus is. And so, your reluctance to surrender is just a longing of the heart for somebody better to surrender to. Friends, Jesus Christ is that better king, that better system of justice, that better judge. He's the good king. He's the prince of peace. And when you come to his mountain and you sit under his rule and reign, you will experience what your heart has always longed for, which is somebody to give you justice, for somebody to give you peace, for somebody to give you blessing. And we know that we can trust him because he gave everything so that we might have him.
The truth is we all surrender to something or someone, whether we believe it or not, in hopes that we'll find more peace than we have right now. The world will offer you peace if you surrender to its charms. I call this misguided surrender, but it's surrender. And if you choose misguided surrender, it will bring you peace, but it will be temporary peace. Let me give you an example. You're feeling anxious, you're feeling fearful, you're feeling pain, you have a lack of peace, and you do this. You surrender to the distraction of entertainment. You surrender to the intoxication of love. You surrender to the numbing effects of alcohol or marijuana. You surrender to the busyness of perfectionism. And you will find a kind of peace. But I guarantee you that that peace will be fleeting. And you will need more and more and more of it to cover up the hole in your heart. And not only will you ride this roller coaster of peace, lack of peace, peace, lack of peace, peace, lack of peace, but the anticipation of the gaps will become a form of distress as you think about the next time that peace ends. And you will then become anxious about losing the temporary peace. Do you see the cycle? And if, if you live your life this way, this is the end that will become of you. You will become a permanent slave to that chaos. The alternative is the peace of Christ. He offers a different kind of peace. And if you surrender to him, he will deliver a permanent peace. If you give him control of your life, if you let him direct your steps, if you work for his glory and his kingdom alone, forsaking all other kingdoms, including your own, it will lead towards peace everlasting. And here's what Jesus predicted will happen. And the Apostle Paul, like we just studied, experienced this. And many Christians in years past have experienced this, and many Christians still today experience this, that you could and probably will experience temporary chains, temporary oppression, and temporary tribulation because you have surrendered to this king. But that temporary chain will lead to permanent peace. So what do you want? What do you want? This is, this is the big decision in life. What do you want? Do you want temporary peace and permanent chains, or do you want temporary chains and permanent peace? That's really the decision that the Bible and the gospel lay out for us. But we all surrender to something, and peace only comes through surrender. To whom are you surrendering? Peace only comes through surrender, and surrender always begins in the heart. When you decide to stop struggling with God and let him have what is rightfully his, he will give you a new heart, a heart of peace. 
peace towards him and peace towards others. This is God's master plan for ridding the world of evil, war, greed, malice, covetousness, the heart outward. You can't just give him your hands or your feet or your Sundays or your wallet. He needs your heart. And once you give that to him, he will never lose it. That should give you so much peace, my friends, that once you choose to surrender your heart and give it to Christ, he will not lose it. No one can take it away from him. It cannot be snatched from him. He cannot drop it. You cannot take it back. You should experience, my friends, if you've ever surrendered your heart to God, that you have eternal security. You have an assurance of peace everlasting. Now, some Christians in the room need to hear this because they don't feel it. They're not experiencing the feeling of peace. But you have peace with God. You cannot lose that if you've given your heart to him. Psalm 23, the great psalm says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. No matter what you've done, you have not lost God's favor in your life. No matter how far you think you've strayed from him, he's still there. No matter what danger or pain you're experiencing, Christ Jesus is right next to you. That's what that psalm tells us. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm in the valley, I'm not on the mountain, I'm in the valley, I will fear no evil because he is with me. So stop focusing on the danger. Stop focusing on the massive waves that crash around you. Stop bracing yourself for the pain that might come around the next bend and focus on what you have. Peace with God through Christ. He is with you. Refocus your gaze on him. He will be there. Though the cacophony of pain and sorrow and danger and depression are so real. They are so real. They are so real. But the thing that is more real is the peace that you have with your God. I've quoted C.S. Lewis, Blaise Pascal, Peter Kreft, three great philosophers of their age. But I want to end by quoting the most profound source of wisdom in my life right now, which is my wife, Allie. Last night at 10 p.m., I came home just feeling like I didn't quite have a way to end my sermon, and I said, Allie, she, didn't know, she did not know anything about what I was preaching on. She tries to keep it that way. She did not know anything. She did not know the passage I was preaching on, Isaiah chapter 2. And I just asked her, what do you think of when I say longing in peace? Do you know what she said to me? She said this, totally unprompted. She said, I think of flying into Seattle on a cloudy day and seeing Mount Rainier breaking through the clouds, and I think of God's kingdom, it's like that mountain. If you could just focus on the promises of God beyond the clouds, 
we would have a lot more peace even before we reached the top. <laughs> and I, I just started laughing and I said, can I show you something? And I brought over my Bible and I said, guess, guess what passage I'm preaching on this morning? And I read it to her. And I showed it to her. And this is what I read. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. My friends, I hope that you surrender your heart and wherever you are right now, head, beeline to the mountain of the Lord. And as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death and you climb the traverse, that you know that he is with you each and every step along the way. Let's pray. Father God, God of all glory, of all majesty, the true king, the good king, the best, better, only king, help us to come and surrender our lives to your rule and reign. Help us to know that our peace and the peace of our world depends upon finding you, the one true mountain that will outlast all mountains. That each and every other mountain that is not the mountain of the Lord, the God of Jacob, will be picked up and thrown into the sea so that when all people come underneath the good king, the prince of peace, they might experience what I've experienced. A deep, bone-level knowledge of your love for me. I pray this for my friends, that they know the peace of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.